Let's take our Bibles and turn to the book of Philippians. We've been studying Philippians for a couple months now, and I hope this has been an encouragement to you, and I hope it's been a challenge to you, uh, because this book is fantastic. I don't know about you, but I hope you love it as much as I do. Uh, it's probably the most, uh, it probably has the most clear, practical application of any book in the New Testament, in terms of just showing us what it looks like to live for Christ. And uh, I, I love this book. I just think it's so wonderful. It affirms the rationale for our faith, and it also affirms the rationale for giving, uh, living a life that is uh, completely set apart, completely given to Christ. What does that look like? Well, Philippians tells us. And it all comes down, uh, really, in summary to chapter 1, verse 21, which we've quoted many times and will continue to until we finish this series, where Paul says, for me to live is Christ. He's talking about the end of his life. He knows that he's near the end. He says, to die would be wonderful because then I get to be in the presence of the Lord as we just sang about the last two songs. I get to be with him personally every day in his presence, but, but I know it's not my time yet. So while I'm here, to me to live is Christ. And that's really the essence of our faith, that in everything we are centered toward Christ that we love Christ, that we look like Christ, that we serve Christ. Nothing else is more important. Nothing else transcends that. And in fact, nothing even comes close. A true disciple of Jesus Christ understands that, and their life proves that understanding. Their life verifies the fact that nothing compares to Christ, that in all things he has preeminence. So our goal, our our. Uh, race that we're running, as we talked about last week, that, that finish line we talked about, the end result of that is that when we get to the end of our life, we can look back and say, I lived for Christ. I modeled Christ. I love Christ. Everything about my life was about him. Now, Paul makes a really strong case for that throughout the book, and let me just kind of summarize the chapters again. If you haven't been here or you haven't um, kind of gotten the summary yet, Chapter 1, he says Christ needs to be proclaimed in everything we do and that we should live in a manner that's worthy of his calling. That's just a one-sentence summary. In chapter 2, we're taught that we're to have the same mind that Christ had, humble and selfless and sacrificial, and we're to live our, out our salvation with fear and trembling, holding fast to the word. And in chapter 3, which we're in right now, Paul talks about how worthless his past life was, how in... Uh, incapable his good works were compared to knowing Christ and compared to being given the righteousness that it comes through faith in him. And then in chapter 4, we're taught that living for Christ will be dramatically evident. When we are living for Christ, it will be obvious because we will be marked by joy and by lack of anxiety and by peace and by holiness and by contentment in the provision of God. So this is real straightforward, very clear-cut, very logical there's really no confusion about the motivation, and there's no confusion about the application. It's all right here. But what I love about Philippians is that it's not discouraging. It's exciting. It's exciting to see the potential of what God is doing in our lives and what we can become. And when we see what Christ has done for us, and then we look at the fact that the Holy Spirit enables us, now we get this call to action 
And I hope and pray that each of us says, all right, I'm ready to go. This is, this is wonderful. Look at what God has done. Look at what God is doing in me. And look at what I can become. So I hope that this will be encouraging to you. Now, in the last month, we've kind of seen how Paul has developed this practical theology. If you go back to the start of chapter 3, how he's developed this practical theology by using his own life as an example. And he says, I look back at who I was as a Pharisee and a Hebrew of Hebrews, the right right, uh, lineage, the right training, everything about me was just perfect in terms of what you're supposed to do. But he says it was complete rubbish. When I think about knowing Christ and when I think about the righteousness that comes from faith in Christ, everything that I did in the past was worthless because I need to be transformed. And I And I hope that spurs us as believers to do what we talked about last week, which is to forget our past life, to press on to our new life, and and to continue to run with the goal for the prize of the calling of God. Now, that kind of ends, when we got to the end of last week, chapter 3, verse 16, that kind of ended the, the practical theology phase of the book. Now, starting in verse 17, and going all the way through the end of chapter 4, We're going to see now a very personal appeal, very practical application to be distinctive in how we live. So let's start this morning in chapter 3 and verse 17. We're going to read down to the end of verse 21. And there are a couple phrases here that we're going to kind of key on. So maybe take some notes, write some things down. Let's try to interact with the text as we always try to do. Philippians 3.17. Brothers, join in following my example... And observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. For many walk, of whom I often told you, and now tell you even weeping, that they are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, whose glory is in their shame, and who set their minds on earthly things. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. A couple phrases this morning. One of the phrases is in the first verse we read, verse 17. And and honestly, it kind of flies under the radar uh, compared to the first part of the sentence. Because the first part of the sentence, Paul says, follow my example. We know from his life, we know from his ministry, that he had the the legitimacy to say that. That because he was so given to the Lord, so faithful to the Lord, calls himself a bondservant of the Lord, that, that Paul literally, without pride and without arrogance, could say to other believers, look at my example and follow this, because I've learned about the grace of God, I've learned about righteousness that's based on Christ, not on me. So, so if you look at my example and kind of follow my lead, we'll be good. But there's a second phrase in there that, that in all the times, I love this book so much, I've studied it probably more than any other book in the Bible, and all the times I've studied it, I've never keyed in on this phrase. And as I'm studying this week, the Holy Spirit kind of goes, look at that, because there's something very important. There's a very spiritual, uh, important spiritual principle there. And it's that phrase that comes after the first line, observe those who walk according to the pattern that you have in us. 
Now, this is what I love about Scripture, because no matter how many times we've read it, the Holy Spirit can teach us something fresh. And it's truth that's kind of straightforward, but, but it stirs our heart and kind of makes us more passionate. So, so what is he saying to do? Paul is pointing to other people like himself who have committed their lives to being completely sold out for Christ, who, who, whose everything in their life is about following the call to live for Christ. And these people aren't named. It's not like chapter 2 where he says, you know, look at Timothy and look at Epaphroditus and other passages where he mentions certain people like Barnabas or Epaphras or whoever. This is not that. These people are unnamed, but he says, look at them. Because even though they don't have maybe the outward influence that, that I have just because of my position, he says what they are doing, the impact of their lives is just as strong because they have fulfilled the greatest calling that we have within the body. One of the most powerful and, and, and I would say useful benefits that we're given, that, excuse me, that we can give to other believers is to walk according to the pattern of Christ-likeness. Let me say that again because I kind of stumbled on my words. One of the greatest and most useful benefits that we can give to other believers is to walk according to the pattern of Christ-likeness. Not only because it does what Paul says, it sets an example for other people to follow, but also because it becomes a great resource of training and encouragement. See, as the body of Christ, we live in a reciprocal relationship with each other. You and I, you and each other, us and you, them and us, whoever, however you want to term it. As part of the body of Christ, we live a reciprocal relationship, meaning that at any moment when, when I am discouraged or I'm fearful or I'm lacking in faith or where there's strong temptation or where I'm slipping spiritually or any other time of weakness... I can look at another mature believer and, and I can gain strength and I can gain encouragement and I can look at the example of their holiness and say, okay, I can do that. Now, when I'm weak, I can look to you. When you're weak, you should be able to look to me. That's how the body of Christ works. The Bible says we should constantly be spurring each other on to love and good works. That we can look at each other and say, that's what it looks like to follow Christ. Now that's not only our, our, our responsibility, it's our privilege. Because if you are struggling, I want you to be able to look at me, not because I'm the pastor, but because I'm a fellow believer. I want you to be able to look at me and say, you know what, Paul's strong in his faith, and Paul's walking in holiness, so I can do that too. And when I'm struggling and weak and, and, and kind of falling back, that I can look at you and say, look, they're doing it too, so, so I need to strengthen from them. See, the Holy Spirit gives us all the power we need. But he also gives us this wonderful privilege of the body of Christ where we can strengthen each other in the battle because we're all in the middle of the battle. And sometimes when you're in a battle, you need to look at the other person and see their perseverance. In sports, and it's a weak illustration in terms of a real spiritual battle, but in sports, you want to look at your teammates and see confidence in their eyes. You don't want to look at them and go, I don't want the ball because that's not going to inspire you at all. 
So we need to be able to look at each other and see that fire and that passion in the eyes. We need to be able to look at each other and see a faith that is unmovable. We need to look at each other and see a, a holiness and a commitment to Christ that is unshakable. We need to constantly be looking to people that are more mature in, than us and gaining strength. And we need to constantly be filtering down our life to those who are younger or weaker in the faith than us and be strengthening them. It's all working together toward each other. You should always have somebody in your life that's more mature than you spiritually because they're going to strengthen you. And you should always have people that you're discipling, that you're influencing, that you're strengthening in their own walks so they will press on. Now that's unique to the body of Christ. And this is a great way for us to have a gospel influence on culture because we live in such a narcissistic, self-sufficient society that is all about us. It's all about the individual. And this is not only one way we can be set apart, but it's another way that we can show them the love of Christ that we have each other, that we're unified, that we're strengthening each other daily. But to do that, we have to be holy. To do that, our faith has to be strong. To do that, we have to be consecrated. So you and I, like these unnamed people at the end of verse 17, you and I can be one of them. Then we go on to verse 18, which details what will hinder and prevent that from happening. Now, before we study this verse, because this verse is very strong, we need, to, we need to kind of say that it's likely that none of us will see this verse as describing us. And in the literal sense, it may not. And I certainly hope and pray that it doesn't. But there are a couple facts here. There are three facts in verses 18 to 20 that, that describe something that should really give us pause. They should, they should make us stop and say, you know what? I need to evaluate my own life in terms of these three facts because I want to make sure that that's not where my heart is. Okay? You may want to write these down. So let's look at the first one. The first one is that in verse 18, it says that many people will walk this way. Many people will walk this way. What's interesting here is that he's not talking about the opponents of Christ. He's not talking about atheists and people that are violently opposed to God and people that deny Jesus Christ. He is talking about people who say they're Christians, but their lives contradict what they say they believe. Now, Jesus says to us, by your fruit you shall know them. And Paul says that it literally makes him weep, that, that he's sobbing as he writes this, thinking about the many people that he knows that don't evidence the fruit of a changed life. I was having a conversation with somebody this week uh, about what I think is the scariest, uh, most frightening verse in the Bible. And to me, it's when Jesus says, many, same word, many will get to my judgment seat and say, Lord, Lord, and I'll look at them and say, depart from me, I never knew you. I said, that's got to be the most frightening verse, the, the verse that shakes us, the verse that sobers us more than anything else because there are going to be people that legitimately walk up to the judgment seat of Christ and say, I'm ready, Lord, I'm ready to come in. God's going to go, I never knew who you were. 
You claim to be a believer, but there was no fruit. It, there, there wasn't any evidence. You didn't really love me. You didn't really trust me. You just kind of went through the motions. And you know what? That's not going to get you in. You had to trust in Christ, live for Christ, love Christ, be devoted to Christ, and you didn't. So go away. Now, that, that's a hard verse to reconcile. And the person said to me, do you think we'll be surprised who's in heaven? And I said, well, based on Scripture, I think we're going to be surprised who's not in heaven. And that's sad and that's sober. And there's no joy in that, which gives us, again, a greater urgency, like with, with VBS, a greater urgency to reach people for Christ, to grab them because they have one foot already in the fire and they think they're fine. They're burning, but they're fine. So, Many will walk in this way. And then second, he says, the, the essence of the verse is that we need to examine ourselves because this verse is given as a warning to the church. It's interesting, this isn't written in Corinthians where people were self-centered and loved themselves were fighting. It's not written to them. It's not written to Ephesus. Ephesus would lose their love for Christ. This is written to the most spiritually mature church in the New Testament the one that would have had the greatest discernment. What does that tell us? It tells us that the spiritual inclination to, to be like this is not only possible, but it is likely in some circumstances to infect the hearts and minds of priorities of people who identify themselves as Christians. Now, we, we know we're in a constant spiritual battle, and we know that the enemy... Is, is constantly going after our mind. As we saw in the last few weeks, his main push is going to be to get us to live for ourselves and even as believers to live independently of God. See, he can look at us and even he says, all right, you're saved. I can't get you. I can't drag you to hell. You're, you're going to go to heaven. But you know what? I can do a lot of damage to you on your way there. And if I can get you to live independently of God, if I can get you to, to not mature in holiness, if I can get you to, to disregard the word of God and to not pray and to not trust and to not give and to not serve, if I can do that, I can damage you on the way to heaven and I can damage the people around you. It's no coincidence that God says many will walk this way. So when we look at that, I hope that kind of grabs our heart. And I hope we say, all right, now I've got to assess my mindset. Because when we look at the characteristics of this, none of us would say, well, I'm an enemy of the cross. We're in church. We love the Lord. We're trying to serve the Lord. So, so I'm not an enemy of the cross. And yet any time that we live for ourselves, we're in sin. And any time we're in sin, we're acting as an enemy of the cross. So we've got to evaluate. And that's what brings us to the third truth. Look at verse 18 and 19. Actually, 19. Because these characteristics that are described in this verse are so easy to slip into. And I want to take just about one minute on each, maybe two, and let's, let's evaluate what Paul is saying here because the Spirit, as he speaks through Paul, is detailing the motivation that comes for not living for Christ. There are four things here. Number one, he says, the people that are characteristic of this, their end is destruction. 
What does that mean? It means that they don't live with an awareness or even a care about the Lord because pleasure becomes more important. It doesn't mean they don't think about God. It doesn't mean they don't serve God. It just means that when it comes down to priority, when it comes down to preeminence, that pleasure becomes more important than living for God. When, when I'm counseling somebody who's not walking with the Lord, somebody who, is, who has had an affair, somebody that's struggling with a vice, whatever the case may be, we don't need to detail the things. But, but almost every time, uh, when I'm talking to that person and trying to encourage them and trying to call them back to the Lord, I will ask them the question, what's the end game of your actions? Where is this leading? Where is this going to go? Because if we honestly understand the consequence of sin, then we will see that for now, there's going to be damage done by our sin. For eternity, there's going to be an impact of our sin. And hopefully, as we get that thought into our hearts and minds, then that will drag us away from sin. But the devil is constantly trying to block that awareness from our heart. So he gently and gradually but consistently gets us to stay engaged in the sin, and then he lies to us and says, isn't this so wonderful, and isn't this great, and there's not really damage being done, and you're going to be fine, and everybody will get over it, and it's not really hurting you, and you're still going to church. He keeps telling these things in our brain, and we need to stop and say, where is this headed? Where is this going if I keep on this path? Because the one thing the enemy will never tell us is the end of that is I want to destroy you. See, the lie of the enemy is, I really care about you, and I just want you to be happy. Don't forget, the enemy is a liar. The only thing the enemy wants is to destroy. He has no interest in your happiness. He has no interest in your pleasure, other than your pleasure is a vehicle to destruction. He wants to destroy every single marriage. He wants to destroy every single church. He wants to destroy every single pastor and missionary. He wants to destroy this whole world. He is not interested in the world thriving. He is interested in the world being destroyed. So, the end is what? Look at the text. The end is destruction. Second characteristic. Their God is their appetite. This is not about food. This is about the lust of the flesh. The flesh always wants to be satisfied and it always wants to be filled right now. Don't think about it. Don't worry about how it'll make you feel. Just do it. The appetite of the flesh can drive us and control us, which is why God says you're going to have to deny yourself daily and you're going to have to fervently ask me to remove that desire in other words take the taste away for sin now how many know this morning that all things are possible with God if you do say amen okay if all things are possible with God then any appetite that is sinful any appetite that becomes our God can be removed by the power of God 
But we're going to have to ask him. We can't just say by proxy, well, Lord, you say any appetite be removed, so waiting. No, we're going to have to ask him, Lord, I have an appetite for this sin. I have an appetite for pornography. I have an appetite for alcohol. I have an appetite for materialism. I have an appetite for food. I have an appetite for this or this or this or this. And Lord, it's becoming my God. It controls me. It's what I think about. It's, it's affecting my relationships. It's affecting my work. It's affecting my walk and my witness. Lord, you've got to remove that. I need you to remove it. Take away the taste. Take away the desire. Lord, I beg you, take this away from me because I don't want that to become my God. And it will. It will. Maybe it is right now. God knows our heart. He knows that if we sincerely come to him, he will recognize sincerity. He looks at the heart. So if you go to the Lord and say, Lord, I need you to remove this desire from me. I need you to remove this appetite from me because it is hurting me. God is not going to go, I don't care. I'm too busy. No, come on. You, you just do your best. Do you think God will ever answer a sincere prayer that way? When we come to him and we say, Lord, remove this, God will say, good, you're sincere. I'm going to take that taste away from you. Now you have some responsibility too. I'm going to remove the desire, but you need to remove the action. Third, look at it. Their glory is in their shame. In other words, they love being like the world. And that's evidenced in the fact that they won't break from the world's values. I was thinking, again, this is written to believers. I was thinking last night about some verses that are in Scripture that are not easy. Abstain from all appearance of evil. Present your body as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. Let no corrupt communication come out of your mouth. Don't even associate or eat with any so-called brother if he's a moral, covetous, idolater, reveler, or drunkard. Those are not verses I created. Those are verses in Scripture. And those are hard verses. But it's our calling. And we need to be sobered by those verses because we need to, to please, Holy Spirit, help us right here. We need to have a sense of shame. You know what the word shame means in this verse? It means whatever is dishonoring to God. We need a greater sense, believer, we need a greater sense, church, of what is dishonoring to God. Now here's the problem. Shame isn't acceptable anymore. Even using that word, I was thinking about this as I was looking through my notes at 9.15. Even using that word makes us a little uncomfortable. Like, nobody talks about shame anymore. Oh, so we're going to be one of those churches where it's all about shame? Now, listen to what the Holy Spirit's saying here. This is about what is unacceptable, what is dishonoring to God. And here's what the enemy's done. The enemy has effectively eliminated the concept of shame from our culture. Let me give you some examples. Kids can't lose in sports anymore. We don't keep score. And when you're done, everybody gets a trophy. You can't really, 
it's kind of weird now to give kids expectations and values and horrors chores because it might affect their self-esteem. We can't discipline kids because we might get arrested. No one can ever be judged or criticized. We can't have opinions that are contrary to what the culture says is right. And we certainly, certainly, certainly cannot hold moral or biblical values because somebody might be offended that the Bible says no. Am I right? Do you you hear that? So if there's no sense of shame because there's no sense of moral standards or values, then everything is on the table, everything is acceptable, which means that people can glory in anything because nothing's wrong. That's how a culture gets to the middle of verse 19, where their glory is in their shame. And it's even permeated into the church. Because now we can't talk about sin. We're going to in this church. But, but, but now we can't talk about sin, and we can't call people to live as sanctified disciples of Christ. So the, the path that the church, not all the church, but many of the church, has taken now is we talk about felt needs, and we talk about practical uh, teaching that kind of bears little resemblance to the Word of God because the Word of God has the verses I quoted earlier, and we can't talk about those things in church because we don't want people to walk out feeling a sense of conscience. Well, I ask you, if we don't come to church to get a sense of what the Word of the Lord says and get conscience and, and change and become followers of Christ, then why are we meeting? I don't get it. If it's just pablum, if it's just being spoon-fed some milk and saying, well, just do better and try hard and and, kind of do your best, listen, I can get that anywhere. I can get that on TV. The Word of God is powerful. It's sharper than a two-edged sword, and it rightly divides the soul and the spirit. This is, listen, if we're going to teach the Word, we've got to live by the Word. We can't ignore the word, or we're just a social club. Their glory is in their shame. Fourth, they set their minds on earthly things. The Spirit kind of buries the lead here. This is the one that's the foundation for all the others. Having an earthly mindset inevitably leads a person to crave sin because there's no sense of eternal ramification. If there's no sin and no accountability, then we can do whatever we want. And if this life is the only life we have, there's certainly no motivation to live for anything other than yourself, to live for the here and now. And if God's not real, then there's no ultimate moral truth. And if there's no ultimate moral truth, then there's nothing that's sinful. And if there's nothing that's sinful, then we're not accountable to anybody. And if we're not accountable to anybody, let's just do whatever we want. I mean, that's, that's the logical progression. And there may be a little nagging voice in the back of our head saying, well, what if we're wrong, and what if there is accountability, but, but we easily shrug that off. So, look back at it. Their end is destruction, their God's their appetite, their glory's and their shame, and they set their minds on earthly things. He's saying this is what we all are at risk for if we're not living for Christ. Now you say, all right, well, How do we bring that together? Well, 2 Peter 3 calls us to live a life with a view of eternity. 
And that fits in with chapter 3, verse 20 here in Philippians, where the Spirit reminds us that our citizenship is in heaven. As those who trust Jesus Christ, as those who have yielded our lives to the Spirit, we no longer belong to this world. And by extension then, we no longer have a desire for what this world has to offer because our loyalty is changed. Jesus Christ is what we love now, and we pledge our allegiance to him, not to the devil. So the huge question then is, do our lives evidence our new citizenship? Do we pass the test of what it means to be heavenly citizens? A few years ago, Bettina took the, the citizenship to become a citizen of the United States, and of course, she passed with flying colors, and we were so proud of that. And I was thinking about that this week, and, and I thought, I'm going to do a little research. I wonder how many people, because I've seen a couple articles like this, I wonder how many of us that have lived here all our lives would pass the same test. And I found some very fascinating stuff. A recent survey by Xavier University in Cincinnati found that 38% of United States citizens would fail the citizenship test for immigrants. 97% of those that are, that are immigrants that take the test pass. But 38% of, of people that are natural born in the States would fail. Now, the test is only 10 questions which means that many Americans can't even get five answers right. And let me read some of the questions for you. How many members does the House of Representatives have? How many years is the president elected for? Who is the president right now? Who becomes president if the president can't serve anymore? What's the highest court in the United States? I don't know how you missed that one. When was the Declaration of Independence adopted? Name three of the original states. 38% of people couldn't get five of those ten right. And the most common questions people got wrong revolved around the different functions of government and how power is distributed between the federal and state governments, which explains a whole lot of what's going on in our country, right? 75% of respondents didn't know what the judicial branch of government is, or does, excuse me. 71% of the country could not name the Constitution as the law of the land. 57% can't define what an amendment is. Now, the director of the study, understandably, was troubled by that. And he made a very perceptive comment when he said, if we are civic illiterates, the chances of losing our freedom is greater than being invaded by aliens or a foreign country. He's absolutely right. And if you want to further be depressed on this rainy, foggy day, in 2009, the state of Oklahoma found that only 23% of students knew that the first president was George Washington. Only 2.8% of students scored well enough on the test to be eligible for U.S. citizenship. And in case you think Oklahoma's just slacking off, in Arizona, it was 3.5%. Only 10% knew how many Supreme Court justices there are. Only 14% knew who wrote the Declaration of Independence. And only 61% knew the ocean that's on the East Coast. Now, 
At 18, those people are eligible to vote. Now, I'm not criticizing teenagers because the problem's widespread. But think about the fact that even these basic, basic tenets of our country, many people don't know anything about them. And then the Holy Spirit kind of gave me epiphany and said, now how do we apply that spiritually? How would we do on a heavenly citizenship test? I'd love to develop a test like that. Covering topics like basic theology, not, not how do you explain the Trinity? How does the Trinity work? Nobody understands that. I don't care who you are. Nobody can explain the Trinity. But, but how do you lead somebody to Christ? What does it mean to be justified by faith? What does atonement mean? How would we do naming the 12 disciples? Do we know where the Ten Commandments are found in the Bible? Can we explain what a parable means? How comfortable are we with praying? How passionate are we about worship? What, what grade would you and I make in practical Christian living? What grade would we make in fulfilling the Great Commission? Would we want that kind of test? I know we're probably all going, yikes, don't ever write that, Pastor. Don't, don't ever do that. And the fact that we cringe a little bit tells us what we need to know. Because a test like that would determine how well we're fulfilling our heavenly citizenship. And what we've studied last week and this week is there needs to be tangible and significant progression in our walk. You want a really sobering statistic. 80% of people in our country identify themselves as Christians. But in doing research, several organizations have found that the real number of people that really trust Christ, live for Christ, serve Christ, and are on fire for Christ is about 7 to 9%. 7 to 9%. And then you look at verse 20. Let's finish. You look at verse 20 and it says, a desire that reveals our true citizenship is that we're eagerly waiting for the Savior to come back. Now, why would we eagerly wait for the Savior to come back? I got my whole life living in front of me. I remember when I read this verse as a kid, I'm like, no, no, I got a lot of life to live. I want to go to college and I want to get married and I want to have kids. I want to get a job. I want to be successful. I want to have a house. I mean, when you're young, that's, that's all you live for. Now I get it. Now I get it. Because the world is such a mess this morning. And it doesn't seem like there's going to be this revival, even though we got to keep working for it, praying for it. It doesn't seem like it's going to turn back. And now we eagerly look for the Lord because when the Lord comes, we are going to see Him as He is. And we're going to meet Christ. And we're going to become like Him. And His sanctification will be fully realized every single moment of eternity, and we will be in His presence, and there will be nothing greater. Now, if that doesn't stir us, then we have to look at it and say, well, where is my citizenship? Is my citizenship here? Do I love this world more? Do I desire more out of this? Or can I not wait to get to heaven? Like Paul says, if I die, it's awesome, but while I live here, I have a job. i got to live for Christ. Everything's got to be around Christ. When Jesus evaluates us, looking at our heart, what does he see? 
How would we do on the test? 2.8%, I don't know. Really, ultimately, it's between us and the Lord. But we need to be prepared. Your citizenship is in heaven. You're no longer of this world. The world is alien to you. God has transformed you. God has changed you. Now you live for him. May God help us to do that. Let's pray.